Well, if you would, please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 12. In just a moment, I'll read the entirety of it for us. Uh, Today, we're going to see Samuel's farewell address as Israel's judge. Now, these are not Samuel's final words. We're going to see him say a lot more before he dies. And uh, with Samuel, uh, we'll even see him say things after he dies. And so these are not his final words spoken before death. This is his final address to Israel as their judge. You think of a leader who gives one last speech before stepping down from their formal public office. Now that's what's happening in chapter 12. And so the obvious question to begin with is why? Why is Samuel stepping down from his office? Were the Israelites able to get term limits through? Nope. Uh, was it because of a moral failure? No. Is it retirement? Is Samuel just going out to pasture? No. Why is he stepping down as executive of the nation? Well, we've been talking about this ever since chapter 8. Samuel was not a king. And the people of Israel wanted a king to rule over them. They wanted a king like all the other nations had. They wanted to get with the times and join the rest of the Iron Age. They're over God raising up a deliverer in their time of need. They'd rather have a hereditary monarchy where a man would rule and his sons would rule after him and his grandsons and his great-grandsons would rule after him. But as we saw back in chapter 8, there's something deeper than political theory happening here. Back in chapter 8, the Lord exposes the hearts of the people and tells Samuel, hey, don't take this personally. It's not you. It's me they're rejecting. It's me, their covenant God, that they no longer want to rule over them. They'd rather trust a man than me. They'd prefer a man that they could see as opposed to being ruled by a God that they can't see. So this is why Samuel is stepping down and why Saul is taking his place. Now, I've found that I like to have a center line to follow when I preach. Instead of just walking through a text and saying, this verse means this, that verse means that, I want to try to find the point or the main idea that the text is communicating. I want to look for the hub that all the other spokes are circling. And this week I believe that hub, that main thing, is Israel's sin. Their sin of rejecting God as their king and wanting to replace him with a human king. It's the whole reason for this text. It's the reason Samuel is giving this farewell address. It's because of Israel's sin. And so as we walk through this text, what I want to do is ask, 
What can we learn from Israel's sin? What does 1 Samuel 12 teach us regarding Israel's sin? And not just Israel's sin, but ours as well. Well, with that brief intro, let's pray and then read our text. Father God, we remember that your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. And that it is our daily bread. And so would you feed us this morning from it? Feed your people. Strengthen them. Grow their faith. And their trust in you. I ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. First Samuel 12, we'll read the entirety of the chapter together. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, And the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them, and they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned. Because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now, deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel to deliver you out of the hands of your enemies on every side. And you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, 
No, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king. And now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and your king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet, do not turn aside from following the Lord. But serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider the great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, You shall be swept away, both you and your king. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. All right, so I've got four things that we can learn from Israel's sin. The first three are pretty lengthy, and the fourth is very short. What's the first thing? We can learn from Israel's sin. There was no good reason for it. There was no good reason for it. It was needless. It was even illogical. Look how Samuel begins. He opens the door and allows them to put him on trial. He allows them to air their grievances concerning his leadership. You know, maybe, maybe that's why they wanted to replace him. Maybe he's an immoral leader who has stolen from them and oppressed them. And so he asked, Whose property have I stolen? Whose ox, whose donkey have I taken? Who have I defrauded? 
Who have I oppressed? If anyone knows of a bribe that I took that blinded my eyes to justice, then name it. And if I've cheated or stolen or oppressed you, here's your opportunity. And with God as my witness, I will make it right. Now, how, how many leaders would be able to survive such brutally honest feedback from their constituents? Probably not many. But Samuel welcomes it. He says, I've been with you from my youth to my old age. And if anyone can come forward and name any way in which I abused my power and hurt you, I will make it right. That's how he begins this farewell address. And what's the response of the people? They've got nothing. They say in verse 4, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. Okay? Well, then why are you ousting him? Why replace a man of such integrity? I mean, if this was Nicolas Maduro, then it would make sense. You know, Maduro is the president of Venezuela who has enriched himself while his people are starving in the streets and eating dogs. You can understand why Venezuelans would want to oust Maduro, but why Israel? They have no good reason. They can't name a single way in which Samuel has sinned against them in his position of leadership. Well, we can go higher up the chain of command. Maybe the God who called Samuel is the problem. Maybe his actions are what's driving their request for a new king. And Samuel gets into that. He says, stand still so that I may recount all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and your ancestors. And he says, the family of Jacob, Israel, moved to Egypt because of a severe famine, and the Egyptians oppressed them. And when your fathers cried out to the Lord, he sent Moses and Aaron to bring them out of Egypt and into this land. But they soon forgot about the Lord their God, and so he handed them over to their enemies. You know, these neighboring nations that you want to emulate so badly. And then the people cried out to the Lord, They confessed their sin. They confessed their going after other gods, and they said, deliver us so that we may serve you. And he did. He sent Drubbabel and Barak and Jephthah and even me, Samuel, the last of the judges. He sent all of us. He heard your cries. He raised up leaders to set you free, and you lived in safety. What? unjust thing has he ever done to you? Nothing. He has only been faithful to you. Now he did discipline you when you broke his covenant and worshiped wicked gods that cannot save, but he's never done you any harm. But for some reason, in this most recent crisis, When Nahash was terrorizing everyone 
on the eastern shore of the Jordan River and gouging out eyes and enslaving you. For some reason, you decided you'd had enough of this God and would prefer a fallible, weak man to rule over you. You decided you'd rather have a creature formed out of the dirt to be your king as opposed to the creator who spoke all things into existence. This is my first point. Sin makes no sense. Ever. They had no good reason to reject the Lord and to replace him with Saul. Samuel had been faithful. God had been faithful. What is this? This is dirty, rebellious mutiny. They never had any good reason for choosing this sin. I'd apply this to you and me by saying that we also never have any good reason for choosing sin. God has not oppressed you. He has not been malicious to you. He has not stolen from you. He has only and ever been faithful and true. Your sin is completely unwarranted. And I know that you might be able to talk yourself into it and justify it in your mind. But if you really consider the facts and recount the Lord's faithfulness to you, you will find that you have no solid standing in your disobedience to him. It is a damnable lie of this age to believe that it's possible to make a choice that is true and sensible and good and a choice that is at the same time in opposition to the will of your Creator. It is impossible. Sin is always disordered. It is always against nature. It is always illogical because all sin is at odds with how God made this world to work. The book of Jeremiah begins this way with the Lord speaking of how his people have forsaken him. And he says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And they have hewn out for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. He's saying, be shocked and appalled, O heavens, because these people had free, unending access to the fountain of living waters that comes from me. Waters that satisfy and heal and bring life and peace and safety and lasting joy. But they've chosen to walk away and search for their sustenance and satisfaction in broken pots. That can hold no water. I think this is what Samuel is getting at in verse 21. He says, Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. What's the common definition people will use for insanity? I'm sure most all of us have heard this. Insanity 
is continuing to do the same thing over and over and over again while expecting different results. Our sin never makes any sense. And I thought of just going through and reading off a a long list of sins that never make sense. Uh, But, you know, I I decided not to because I'd probably just name all mine and leave yours off. But whatever they are, whatever broken cisterns you're running to, know that you have no good reason to choose that sin over loyalty to God. That cistern is empty. It cannot save. It will not profit you. It is not logical. It is not sensible. It is just unbelief and stubborn rebellion against your good and holy God. That's my first point. The people had no good reason for their sin, and neither do we. Second thing we can learn from Israel's sin is this. Forget about a clean slate and just walk in obedience now. Forget about a clean slate and walk in obedience now. You know, there are board games that will make you go back to the beginning and just start over. I'll play Candyland with the girls, and I'll make good progress. I'm getting so close to that rainbow candy castle at the end. And then I draw a card that sends me right back to the beginning. And Mabel cruises in for the victory. It's amazing how many times she has beaten me in that game. But we want to do something similar when we're confronted with our sin. We want to try to find a way to draw a card that will send us back to the beginning so that somehow we can just start over. But look at verses 13 and 14. We read, And now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and the King who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. See what's being said? It was wrong for you to reject the Lord and to ask for a man to rule in His place. But God has given you what you wanted. He's put a king over you. And now, if you and your king will serve and fear and obey and not rebel against him, it will be well for you. You have gotten yourself in a mess. It was wrong. But now that you're here, there's no erasing the past. You can't undo what's been done. You aren't going back. So from this point on, walk in obedience, and all will be well. See, the Lord isn't sending them back to the very beginning of Candyland and just saying, well, we'll just have a do-over. He's saying from here on out, walk in obedience. And we see this down in verse 20. Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. 
Yet, do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. You know, after being confronted with their sin, Israel would begin to think, how can we make this right? Can we just somehow go back and forget that all this happened and forget about Saul? Or they might think, well, let's just dwell on our sin and feel bad about what we've done and just go over all the details in our mind and be really sad and maybe that will help. What does God say? We are where we are. But from this day forward, walk in obedience to me. And guess what? If you do, I will bless both you and your king. You see what this teaches us about our own sin? When we are confronted with it, when we're tasting its bitter consequences, don't think that you can somehow just go back to square one and start over. Rather, stop right where you are in the midst of your mess. Confess it. Call upon the Lord. Trust in Him and begin to go forward in a new obedience. You have done evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. Del Ralph Davis comments on this. I found this so helpful. He says, You don't go back and wallow in your guilt. Relive the tragic mistake, the big one that has soured your life. You don't make yourself miserable by bathing your mind in the memory of your rebellion, punching the replay button, and going over the whole messy episode in lurid and precise detail as though such misery makes atonement. No, you go forward in basic, simple fidelity to the Lord from that point on. He continues, Do not try to reverse all the irreversible consequences of your sin, but gladly accept the fresh grace from God. Don't think that the grand mistake that has disfigured your life is the first disastrous sin God has ever seen. But pursue fidelity from this point on. You might have a big sin from 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Or maybe a big sin from this past week. And it comes back to your mind and you wish that you could go back and undo it somehow. You're tempted to believe that because you stepped outside God's will for your life, that your life is now off the rails and there's no getting it back on track. You know, maybe it's not sin. Maybe you've gotten yourself into a bad situation that you can't get out of. Maybe it's a job that you've taken. A job that... Wisdom would say you never should have accepted. Maybe it's a marriage. Maybe you married someone and you're tempted to think, well, I shouldn't have married that person. Go down the list. 
We can make bad decisions that are very hard to get out of. Well, what do you do? Fear the Lord. Don't turn aside from following him. Serve him with all your heart. Trust in his promises. And he in his kindness may bless that bad situation that you got yourself into. Turn to him where you are. Remember the parable of the lost son. He had some big sins. He said, Father, I wish you were dead. Go ahead and give me my inheritance. And then he goes and squanders the entire inheritance on prostitutes and reckless living. And then he tries to go back. He tries to make up for it. He, he, his plan is to just go home and say, Father, just make me one of your servants. Make me one of the hired hands. I'm not worthy to be called a son. But what does the father do? He's watching for his son. And when he sees him, he runs to him and hugs him and kisses him and throws a party because his son that was lost is now found. There is no situation you can get yourself into that is beyond the help and blessing of your father. He's ready to receive you into his arms and bless you. So that's lesson number two. Don't try to return back to square one. Just repent, trust, obey, and continue on. Third thing we can learn from Israel's sin is that we need a mediator. We need a mediator. And we just ended talking about the grace and blessing of God, but we must not forget that sin against a holy God is deadly serious. In verses 16 through 18, Israel has showed God's anger over their sin. We're told it was the time of the wheat harvest, which was a very dry time of the year. And Samuel says, I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain that you shall know and see that your wickedness is great in asking for a king. You know, we saw something similar back in chapter 7. The people were helpless. They cried out to the Lord, and he thundered from the heavens and scattered the army of the Philistines. Now the thunder is coming for them. I wonder if they thought, are we going to be scattered and destroyed like the Philistine army? Or maybe some saw the dark clouds and felt the rain and remembered the story of Noah. Maybe they had doubts about God keeping his promise to never flood the earth again. They had rejected him as their king, after all. They rejected the one who's able to conjure up terrifying thunderstorms. And so they cried out, Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God. That we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. Back in chapter 7, they said, Samuel, pray to the Lord that we would be defended from an enemy army that wants to kill us. And now they're saying, Samuel, pray to the Lord that he may not kill us for the evil we've done. 
they desperately needed a mediator. They needed someone to stand in the breach between them and the Lord. They needed someone who could represent them and speak on their behalf and plead their cause and save them from a well-deserved death. That's what Samuel does. He prays for them. And I love what he says down in verse 23. Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord. How are you going to sin against the Lord, Samuel? By ceasing to pray for you. It would be a sin against the Lord for Samuel to not pray for them. He says, may it never be that I stop praying for you. Because this is his God-ordained role. And then we get to what is my favorite verse in the passage, verse 22. The answer to why did the people not die in the storm? Why is God gracious to them? Why has he appointed a mediator who must pray for them? Verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people. For his great name's sake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Maybe it'd be helpful to look at this in reverse. It pleased God to make you his very own people. It pleased him to say, I will be your God and you will be my people. He was glad to enter into covenant with you. And so for the sake of his great name, for the sake of his reputation, he will not forsake you. He will not have it said among all the other nations, man, I heard that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob finally had enough and cast them away and destroyed them. He won't allow that to be said. And so he provided a mediator to stand in the breach and plead their cause so that they would not be destroyed. And this is the third thing we can learn from Israel's sin. We also need a mediator. We have done wickedly as well. We have forsaken the Lord. But in his covenant faithfulness, he has provided one who stands in the gap one who prays for us, one who pleads our cause and not only prays for us, but also teaches us. He's provided a mediator who would echo Samuel and say, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. He both prays and teaches, prays for and teaches his people. And we know those words were spoken by our mediator, the greater Samuel, the Lord Jesus Christ. How is he the greater Samuel? I'm going to look at two things quickly. Think of where we began. With Samuel standing before the crowd saying, if I have done anything wrong, name it. 
If I've stolen from you, if I've oppressed you, if I've taken a bribe, name it and I will make things right. And we saw Samuel pass through that trial guiltless. No one had anything to say. But what if Samuel wasn't standing before Israel? What if Samuel was standing before the throne of God? Would he be found guiltless? Not a chance. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, even Samuel. And he would have found himself in the position that the people are in. He would plead to his mediator, pray for me, Lord Jesus. Intercede for me so that I may not die. But what about the Lord Jesus? You know, in Samuel, we see but a shadow of the complete sinlessness of Jesus Christ. No one could ever make a charge against him. He was able to stand before not only human courts, but he could stand in the courtroom of God before the judge who sees all before the judge who reads motives, the God who knows the depths of the human heart, the Lord Jesus could stand before him and be found guiltless. He truly is unique in that he needs no Savior. And then as the spotless Lamb of God, he would lay down his life for his people. as a perfect sacrifice without any defect or blemish. He would be consumed by the storm from heaven. The thundering wrath of God would strike him so that the sins of his beloved people would be atoned for. You know, this is what he would do for his covenant people. It's what he has done for all those that the Lord is pleased to call to himself. For all those that have been ordained to believe, to rest upon him alone and receive him as their peace before a holy God. And not only that, this greater Samuel would also gift his guiltlessness to the people. You don't see Samuel... Take his guiltlessness before the court of Israel and hand it back to the people so that they might be guiltless. But that is exactly what the Lord Jesus has done. He would gift his guiltlessness to his people. All your sin went to him and his guiltlessness goes to you. And so now think about how unimaginable this is. For those in Christ, you are now able to stand before the throne of heaven and be declared guiltless because you possess his perfect righteousness. Second thing we see, Jesus Christ is the greater Samuel because Samuel gets old and gray and in time died. 
and I'm sure the people were anxious. We know that Saul is anxious. We'll see that much later in this book. Who will intercede for us now? Samuel's gone. But Jesus Christ is the greater Samuel because he never grows old and dies. He did die on the cross, but he was resurrected on the third day and now lives forevermore. The writer of Hebrews speaks of the everlasting mediation of Christ when he says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. No, Jesus Christ never gives a farewell address. Never. Because he never departs from his office or offices as our prophet, priest, and king. We need a mediator. And in Christ Jesus, God our Father has provided one. More than we could ever need or ask for. Fourth and final thing we can learn from Israel's sin. And this is going to be quick. The plane is on the runway. Continued rebellion and wickedness ends in divine judgment. Continued rebellion and wickedness ends in divine judgment. We see this in verses 15 and 25. In verse 15 we read, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Remember back when the Philistines had the ark and the hand of the Lord was against them? There was fear and there was plague and there was death. Continue in your rebellion and the hand of the Lord will be against you. Verse 25. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. This serves as a warning for those who will not humble themselves. It's a warning for those who refuse to turn from their sin and to just continue living as if they are their own king. Divine judgment is a very real thing. Covenant curses and separation from God in hell is a very real thing. The Lord Jesus speaks about that place more than anyone else in all scripture. There is a storm of judgment coming for those who despise the one mediator that God has provided. A storm of holy divine anger will sweep them away. And if that is you, I pray that you'd be given the eyes of faith to see it just like Israel did. And like Israel, cry out to Jesus Christ 
and earnestly plead that he would pray for you so that you may not perish in your sin. Let's pray. Father God, I do thank you for these lessons that we can learn about our sin through your word. Father, I pray that we would hold these two things, that we have sinned, we are guilty, we have done wickedness, we have forsaken the Lord, but also you are faithful. You will not forsake your people. You have a mediator who say, far be it from me that I should refuse to pray for this covenant people. Lord, may we hold these two things in the same hand, that we are great sinners, but Christ is a great Savior. I'm reminded of, we're talking about a farewell address this morning. I'm reminded of the final words that John Newton spoke before his death. When he said, my memory is nearly gone. But two things I remember. That I am a great sinner. And that Christ is a great savior. Lord, give us eyes to see those two things. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.